Hello, 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 and welcome back to Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb. I am a senior here at GW. Uh, I've been doing Sheep Thrills now for the past two and a half years. Uh, so this is season five and the final season of Sheep Thrills. Um, I'm very excited to be back in the studio doing this all once again. Um, for those of you who haven't listened before, this is a political commentary show. I always do this little disclaimer at the beginning of every season, but this is technically a talk show and not a news show. I do report the facts. I do a lot of research for this show. I do a lot of preparation, but also a lot of my own bias uh, makes its way into the show very, very frequently. Uh, and I think you'll see that today. And I don't always use a disclaimer when I'm giving my own personal opinion. Um, so just, you know, grain of salt that I am not, you know, pretending this is not CNN. I am my own woman and I am talking about what I believe um, and what I think. And a lot of the times that's, a little, you know, whatever. So just so you know, going into this, don't take my word as law. And if you're offended by anything that I say, I apologize. But, you know. It's okay, we can have this, we can have this debate. But, so yeah, this is the last season of Sheep Thrills. Sorry for that jump scare. Um, I am in my last semester of undergrad. So this is my last semester as a member of WRGW. Um, we'll see, maybe this, this show will take another form in future years and future ways, but I don't know right now. Um, if I do make any decisions, I'll let you know. But as it stands, this, this could kind of be uh, our last set of episodes. Um, but I do plan on kind of going out with a bang, so make sure to tune in this semester because I'm going to try, you know, a few, few new things, some games, some guests, stuff like that. So um, hopefully it'll be a really good final season for y'all. But with all of that being said, we are going to jump into what we have to cover today because boy, do we have a lot to cover today. Um, so if you've been, if my last show was like mid-December, like right before finals ended. So that means I basically haven't had a show for mm, like a month and a half, almost two months. Um, and so if you've been paying attention to politics at all over the last two months, you'll know that we have a lot to cover because a lot happened. Um, a lot of tomfoolery, an epic amount of tomfoolery. So in an effort to organize all of the absolute nonsense news that we've missed since the last episode. Today, I am organizing this episode in a Dance Moms style, ALDC, Abby Lee style pyramid. So I'll be ranking all of the, a couple of the different news show, news um, stories based off of a couple criteria. And my criteria for these rankings, not foolproof, honestly, like anything could change on any given day, but right now, my current criteria for these rankings are overall level of tomfoolery, level of actual political significance, level of embarrassment that the Republican caucus experienced, um, and my own personal enjoyment of the event. So it's all based on my own personal opinions. If you disagree, let me know. I'd love to hear what your own rankings of these uh, events would be. But as you know, Abby, I'm, I'm, I'm embodying Abby Lee Miller today. I am doing this pyramid. Let's, let's just get into it. So without further ado, the pyramid. So on the bottom of the pyramid is the classified document scandals. 
And as that TikTok audio goes, you are good. I'm waiting for you to be great. So over the holiday break, it came out that basically everybody has some form of classified documents in their houses somehow. Um, And that includes Joe Biden and Mike Pence. And of course, this is coming right on the heels of the Donald Trump classified document scandal this summer. Um, So I think it was the summer. Time is a construct. This is wild. But anyway, the um, that scandal was the fact that the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago and found like crates and crates of classified documents that Donald Trump basically stole from the White House as he was leaving. Um, And the National Archives, who is kind of responsible for looking at all these documents and like making sure that they have everything in order, was like looking through the documents from the Trump presidency and was like, "Mm, we're kind of missing a lot of stuff. I don't know what's going on here. And so they ended up reaching out to Donald Trump saying, hey, we're missing these things. Donald Trump kind of resisted uh, um, saying anything about where his where those documents were. And that's what ultimately led to the FBI raid. Um, And so this is kind of a different situation for Joe Biden and Mike Pence, but was not great for the Biden administration at all. So the two main points that I want to cover here. One is that the two scandals are different. The, the Trump scandal and the Biden scandal are two different things, um, especially because, again, Donald Trump kind of resisted working with the National Archives. Joe Biden was very much like working with the FBI, being very transparent, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it, it kind of like based off of what I was reading, it kind of seems like because they were saying that Joe Biden had documents from like way back in the day, um, like when he was a senator, like a million years ago. Um, and so it was all these like old documents that he probably didn't even realize that he still had. Um, but then once he realized he had it, he immediately got in contact with the National Archives and um, kind of went about trying to like fix the situation. Um, and Pence's situation, which I'm not going to cover too much, is likely closer to Biden's. But regardless, um, like and I doubt that there was as much malicious intent versus with Donald Trump. I think there probably was malicious intent. Um, however, the White House and, and before my dear father starts texting me and saying that I'm just a Joe Biden apologist, the White House absolutely like botched this investigation, did a really, really bad job of like actually dealing with the fact that this was the case. Because what they thought initially was that it was, oh, just a few classified documents. We'll deal with it internally. We won't announce that this investigation is happening to the press. And we'll just fix the situation before it gets out at all. And what ended up happening is they were like, okay, well, let's investigate now. Like, do they have, does Joe Biden have more documents in his house, in his offices, whatever? And they kept finding more and more classified documents. And so basically how that turned out was that it snowballed into this much larger thing where then the White House was forced to announce to the press that this investigation was happening. And it looked like, because they probably were, trying to like basically cover up the situation, trying to deal with it internally before they had to announce it. Um, and of course, everybody knows this, the cover up is always worse than the crime. Um, so if they had just come out and said it in the first place, it might have been a situation where they could have just kind of gotten, not gotten away with it, but it would have been less of a thing now. Um, because now, of course, we have Republicans who are in control of Congress kind of fighting to, you know, they're going to have all of these investigations and all of these hearings and House oversight and all these audits and everything else. 
Um, which is now this is going to be something that the, um, you know, is going to be a thing that's top of mind for the next couple of years. Or, you know, the, the people, Republicans in Congress are going to force this to be a top of mind thing uh, throughout the next two years, despite the fact that it's like probably not the same like severity. But of course, you know, both cases, both Trump's and Biden's cases have special counsel. Um, and so, of course, both of those situations are kind of are, are going to be a thing. Um, and they've definitely snowballed into into pretty big things as well. So, again, it's largely faded from the top of headlines. Um, but again, with the Republican Congress, it's going to be up on up top of mind. And again, this ranks pretty low for me in terms of my criteria. The level of tomfoolery is low. The level of like actual political significance is like not insane. Like it's important, but it's not like world ending. Um, and level of embarrassment for Republican caucus, not much. And my own personal enjoyment of the event, also low because I just can't bring myself to care all that much. So that's why that is ranked the lowest, despite the fact that it is probably pretty important. So moving on. Next on the pyramid is the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster hearing. You didn't stick out to me. So look, I know that listening to members of Congress quote Taylor Swift lyrics is fun and like fun for Twitter and we could all like goof off on Twitter about it for a while. But honestly, it, it just didn't particularly stick out to me. And I'm sorry to the Swifties. I am a Swiftie. I am going to the Eras tour. I'm very excited. I also am very anti-monopoly. So I, you know, whatever, has nothing to do with any of that. The point is that uh, it was just seemed clickbaity and weird and like a little bit cringy. So again, in terms of my criteria, which are admittedly very loose, um, the level of tomfoolery is pretty low. Re Republicans didn't experience much embarrassment. My personal enjoyment was fairly low. Like the political significance was fairly important, um, but who, you know, whatever. It was just dumb. So the, this, the hearing was done by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and basically, they were trying to uncover whether or not Live Nation Entertainment, which owns Ticketmaster, basically has a monopoly over the concert industry. And this hearing is coming at the heels of the um, Taylor Swift Ticketmaster debacle, where basically Ticketmaster like gave out way too many presale codes and they were selling tickets to bots and a lot of Taylor Swift fans were unable to get tickets um, and a lot of tickets were being then like resold at like crazy crazy high rates and so basically this hearing was kind of trying to get to the bottom of what happened with that particular situation um, and kind of like how Ticketmaster was able to get into the situation of having such a strong control over like the ticketing industry which is very important. And it is really fun that the Swifties managed to um, kind of get this like large scale hearing off the ground. But again, it, it was just the, like the read New York Times article and the quote was, the lyrics were an unsubtle, unsubtle play for virality from politicians who are increasingly aware that becoming a meme can help get the message across. And so it was just it was just cringy. I don't I don't need to see Amy Klobuchar quoting Taylor Swift lyrics that she has never once listened to and some 20 something staffer like wrote into her speech. Like it's it's just cringy to me personally. I know that there's going to be some strong feelings on this. Um but that's that's how I feel. Sorry. Sorry about it. Um 
And again, I think it's also just a matter of like, you know, take take young voters a little bit more seriously. We don't need you to put Taylor Swift quotes into your speeches in order for us to pay attention and care about what you're talking about, um, because we clearly do. Um, but that's on that story. And also kind of tangential, but still funny, is that now that the Taylor Swift debacle has ended, now Beyonce has just announced her tour dates and now everyone is going to be trying to buy Beyonce tickets. Um, and the people on Twitter are like, if you think that the Taylor Swift fans were scary, you have seen nothing yet. Like, Ticketmaster better buckle up and get ready because it's going to get crazy. Um, so that'll be certainly very interesting to see how, uh, if, if Ticketmaster was able to make some adjustments after Taylor Swift or whether they continue to just kind of do their thing uh, and whether or not there's going to be another kind of like, you know, large scale scandal outbreak for Ticketmaster and whether or not there are going to be any long term consequences from that. Um, so, again, low tomfoolery, low personal enjoyment, but like, you know, relatively important political significance on that one. Um, so that is number the second. I mean, I guess we're going backwards. That's number five on the pyramid for going backwards. Next is the book bannings and AP African American history curriculum uh, and everything that's going on in Florida. And when I tell you that my first bullet point for this section is just the word rage with a lot of exclamation points, that's how I feel. So if I get a little heated during this, don't mind me. Um, so a little bit of backstory on this. I'm going to focus more on the AP African American studies course um, because that's um, kind of been a little bit more top of mind, at least like in the last couple of days. Um, but basically, the college board, which whatever, we don't have to say that the college board is a bad thing. We all know that the college board is a bad thing. We're all on the same page with this. Nobody likes the college board, but somehow they have a monopoly over the entire high school education industry and whatever. I can't, I really can't get into ranting about the college board because I will revert back to my 17 year old self and when I tell you that my 17 year old self was one of the worst people alive so we're not even going to go there we're going to go there a little bit but not a lot anyway <laughs> so they proposed a new set of curriculum for an AP African American studies course um, and they released the like first draft of the curriculum back I believe over the summer um, and it was like a pretty robust set of curriculum kind of talking about um you know, African-American culture in the United States, talking about contributions, um, philosophy, like all the different kind of stuff. Um, and as an additional point, Florida has been kind of going through a little bit of a moment right now because of Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, uh, and is probably staging a run for president soon. Um, he has been kind of going crazy on a lot of the culture war stuff that we have talked about a lot in the past and in previous seasons and that we're going to continue to talk about a lot today. So kind of bringing up, you know, drag queens and how they're bad and how they're, you know, ruining America and kind of genuinely like trying to control education uh, in order to kind of put forward. I mean, this is again, this is my own personal bias, but in he wants to kind of control public school education in order to promote a very specific view of America and a very specific view of kind of traditional culture and values. Um, we talked a lot about like the don't say gay bill. Um, 
that was going through Congress, going through like the Florida legislature, um, and a lot of you know trans rights issues and things like that that have, you know, again just him trying to promote a certain set of values and, and cultures on students that may not be reflective of the entire state and certainly is not reflective of the entire nation. So those two things combined, the Florida government, Ron DeSantis, looked at this AP African American Studies course and was like, no, you can't do any of these things. Um, and so the College Board released a new set, like the new curriculum for this class, um, and it purged a lot from the curriculum. Um, so this one quote from, I think it was a New York Times article, talks about the fact that the College Board purged the names of many black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism. Um, it ushered out some politically fraught topics like Black Lives Matter from the formal curriculum. Um, so some of the authors that they have gotten rid of include Bell Hooks, ta Coates, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who originated the concept of intersectionality, which is like one of the biggest most important parts of like social the social justice movement um, over the past like 20 years. You can't have a conversation about kind of anything that has to do with race, sexuality, gender without talking about intersectionality. Um, so basically stripped all of those things from the curriculum. Um, so so here's my thing. <laughs> and I've had this rant before. I'm pretty sure actually this is again tangential and whatever but i think that it was like two semesters ago maybe three i don't even know but i there we were talking about some other education issue and i went on like a crazy rant and i was like sweating like had tears in my eyes by the end and i realized that i wasn't like recording the episode so, like, this, like, amazing monologue that I did was just gone to time. And I'm pretty sure, like, no one was listening. Like, and I, anyway. So I'm going to try to replicate that for you all now. Although I know that the, the magic of that anger and that stress in that moment. Oh, my God. That was a crazy episode. That was, oh, my gosh. Again, I'm sorry that I'm, like, breaking up this episode right in the middle. But I had a show two semesters ago that was at 8 a.m. And so it was me sitting here in this room, still in my pajamas at 8 a.m., like losing my mind because um, I get heated. I get heated about these topics. I really do. But anyway, moving back into the conversation at hand. So the, the root of this for me is that the government specifically does not treat high school students uh, like they have a brain of their own. Um, and they very much believe that high school students, specifically upper level high school students, kind of need to be treated with kid gloves and kind of have no capacity to build their own set of knowledge and to build their own opinions um, and instead are just being indoctrinated by whatever we're learning in school. And as a product of the public school system, can tell you that that's not the case. I've had a range of teachers, specifically in like history and English and those social science classes, some that talked about politics a lot, some that talked about politics not at all. And those that talked about politics that got into kind of issues that were a little bit more uncomfortable, that made us think a little bit harder, were better teachers. And I've had 
liberal teachers who have done that. I've had conservative teachers that have done that. And it's made me think harder. It's made me become a better thinker, a better speaker, um, a better student overall, because they didn't assume that just because we're 16 years old, we can't make our own minds up. We can't build our own thoughts. And there's a lot of value to learning about diverse curriculum and reading diverse books and you know, being presented with those things in an academic situation where you have a mentor or teacher to kind of help guide you along with those thought process, processes is an extremely valuable thing. Um, and I just feel like taking this curriculum and watering it down so much, you know, we have this new curriculum that they're watering down. But then what happens when you take like the regular APUSH curriculum and you start watering that down and then you start taking out, you know, references to Japanese internment and you take out references to slavery and you take out references to, you know, some of the bad things that America has done throughout time, right? You can't, you can't learn history by only, like, you can't learn history by only assuming that America is perfect and has done nothing wrong ever. Because you have to learn that there is a, there is, America does have a spotted history. And everyone needs to acknowledge that because it's a true fact. That doesn't mean that the good parts of America shouldn't be taught. It doesn't mean that, like, there aren't good things about the founding of our nation and about American history. It doesn't mean that America hasn't contributed positively to the world stage over time. But if you don't learn about the bad, how can you possibly ever appreciate the good? Um, and that is really scary to me. And I think that Republicans, conservatives, have this belief set that you need to you need to not indoctrinate children by teaching them one thing. But instead, they're indoctrinating children by teaching them the other thing. And if you just trust teachers, you trust schools, and you trust the students to be able to have that diversity of thought, you're, these people are going to be a lot better, better off long term. And I really am scared for Florida students who are never going to learn how to think for themselves because they are just going to be fed one thing and it's just going to be it. You know, like I have had liberal teachers who I have had political conversations with who I thought that they would agree with me automatically. They would say, oh, yeah, Emily, you're absolutely right about this. Like, here's how we can start this fight together. And they sat me down. They said, you know, I, I don't agree with that. Here's what I think. You know, when I was in high school, there was a lot of stuff going on with March for Our Lives and with gun control and with um you know, just like a lot of a lot of things around that where we were really talking about um, the role of the government in schools, the role of guns in schools and things like that. Uh, we had just had a student resource officer put into our schools and we were kind of talking with our teacher about that, who was very liberal um, and had trusted us to have those political conversations. And he disagreed with us, but he made us articulate our arguments better. He said, I don't think that you're really doing enough research on this issue. I don't think that you really understand exactly what you're trying to argue. Let's refine that argument. Let's make those points better. Because he challenged our thinking. Because that's what school is for. It's to challenge us. Not to be fed um, uh, one argument about American exceptionalism and then move on. It's not to be taught that the Civil War was a, you know, a battle for states' rights. Because you can't be taught about the states' rights argument without being taught about slavery. I don't know. It just really bothers me. Um, it's also just kind of generally critical race theory is not something that's taught in 
schools. And if they talk about critical race theory in this African-American studies class, it's going to be tangential. I did not hear a word about critical race theory in my classes until my sophomore year of college. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I, I could barely grasp what it was when I was in this college level sociology class learning about what critical race theory is. When I was a sophomore in high school, there's no way I would have grasped that content because it's not like it's a it's a pretty complicated sociological concept. Um, and so any kind of giving this to high school students is not it's not going to indoctrinate them because they're going to touch on it like they're barely going to touch on it. Um, and it bothers me. Anyway, my other point on this before I get really far down the rabbit hole um, is that there's also been in Florida. Again, there's been a lot of conversation about um, like book banning and changing curriculum to do certain things. Uh, and that's been happening a lot in Florida and Texas and a couple other places, both in schools and outside of schools. Um, there was one case that I was reading about in Texas where there was a um, woman who sued Barnes and Noble for um, selling one book, like a couple books, one book about, you know, a gay child and one that is a fantasy romance novel that I quite like, which made me laugh out loud. They're like, no, you can't sell this. Like, it's not good for children. And like, you know, don't read it until you're like old enough. But it's just it was just very funny that that case is not going to go anywhere because you can't like ban books being sold to people under 18. It's not like they're cigarettes. Um, but that was just a very interesting case that it's kind of transcending outside of public school, which is controlled by the government. Like the government can say like, these are books that you can and cannot have in libraries. But then once that expands out to the broader community, when parents are trying to control what is being consumed by just the general populace, um, that's when things get a little bit more significant. Um, and so a lot of these books that are being banned or being talked about ban being banned are the kind of the, the general thesis of this set of books is that the government doesn't want kids to feel like they're being blamed for the woes of their ancestors. Um, so they don't want white kids to feel bad or like feel responsible for perpetuating slavery. Which I get, but that's not to say that we shouldn't still be reading about slavery, because we need to learn about slavery and we need to learn who is at fault for slavery. And to say that we shouldn't is silly and wrong, because you need to, like, in, in order to say, oh, well, we don't want white kids to feel bad about slavery, means let's erase this major part of the black experience in America. Like, that's just a crazy argument to make. Whatever. And again, like, I read, like, To Kill a Mockingbird, should, should, white peop should white children in eighth grade reading To Kill a Mockingbird feel bad because they did segregation? No, they shouldn't feel bad because they individually did not do segregation. They should, however, understand the history of segregation in America. They should understand why certain communities look the way they do. They should understand how segregation has built itself into the legal code and it does have long-term ramifications. Because you, you can't understand why we are in the position we are in today without having, again, a strong grasp of history, right? Like we can't understand why our communities look the way they do, why police brutality exists the way it does, 
why kind of th- the way our entire society and political system is structured without having a knowledge of where our history came from and why, you know, the, 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 the systemic issues that existed throughout, throughout history. And kind of whitewashing that history, it's like we're going back to the 60s. And it's such a scary thing and it's such a slippery slope from, oh, well, we don't want kids to feel bad about themselves to let's erase any reference of bad things throughout American history. Let's just go with American exceptionalism, charge forward and let that be that. Because um, that's that's not the way that our education should be. We should be challenging our thought. We should be learning difficult things because challenging our brains and challenging our position in society is a good thing. It's what school is for. We don't learn math because we're going to be, you know, doing derivatives for the rest of our life. We learn math so we learn critical thinking skills. It's the same thing with history. We don't learn history because we're all going to be historians. We learn history so that we can be critical thinkers. We can understand why we're in the position we are in. We can understand, you know, what, why our society looks the way it does. Additionally, separate point, I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, well, if you're going to ban these books from our libraries, well, I'm just going to go to the bookstore and I'm just going to pick up the books and I'm going to buy them. But that is not a situation that all students are in. I would, you know, the, when you're, especially when you're a kid, when you go into a library, you have so much autonomy over the books that you pick out. And when you're going to a bookstore, you don't have your own money. And that means that your parents are going to be choosing books to give to you. Most of my favorite books when I was a kid were books that I picked up on my own. And there's no way that my parents, like, not, not that my, like, not in a bad way, but there's no way that my parents would have ever thought to pick up those books for me. And, you know, you can't buy every book that you have. Not everybody has that access. Um, And libraries are supposed to be a safe space. They're supposed to be a way to build community. They're supposed to be a way to build knowledge. Um, And it's really scary that they're turning these libraries into war zones and they're turning them into places that aren't safe for children to learn about themselves, to learn about other cultures, uh, and to kind of build their own identity. And that's really scary. So that was a little bit of a rant. Falls in the middle because level of tomfoolery is out of control. Um, But also just my rage knocks it down and then knocks it back up. So speaking of rage, let's get in to third on the pyramid. So M&Ms and Tucker Carlson. Third on the pyramid, your third overall high score. This was a tough one to rank because, again, the level of tomfoolery out of control, out of control. Um, and that's probably what knocked it up the most, even though, again, fills me with so much rage that I personally don't think I had like any strong level of enjoyment of the situation. But again, do feel like just, again, the level of tomfoolery out of control. So I probably wouldn't even covered this story if not for the statement that M&M's put out kind of as this was all happening, uh, which we are going to get into because it's wild. It's some wild stuff. So maybe, although, okay, so the, the, the argument here with this statement is like, oh, is this a crazy thing that they did? Or is this just a stunt for the like Super Bowl ad, whatever? We'll say, might be both, probably will be both, but regardless. Uh, we talked about, I cannot believe that this is the second time I think that I've had to cover Tucker Carlson and his relationship with M&M's. Like this man 
just has so many problems. Why? Why? Why is this the second time we've had this conversation? Um, regardless, I think that we talked about M&Ms briefly last semester when this first of nonsense began. Um, so this was when they started giving the green M&M sneakers instead of boots because they were trying to like modernize the M&M. So they're like, we feel like we've accidentally been slut shaming this M&M. So we want to make this better. And so we're going to give the M&M's empowering sneakers instead of her fun boots. Um, and Tucker Carlson had a meltdown because he thought that we were making, not we, but he thought that the M&M was becoming like masculine. Um, and how dare we, you know, have a M&M with sneakers instead of boots. Um, and this was, you know, a topic of conversation on Tucker Carlson's show for like a week, because I guess he has nothing better to talk about. Um, I wrote a note in here, whatever happened to good old fashioned sexy candy? So that's where we're at right now in terms of the political discourse of this nation. Ha ha ha. Anyway, so the newest part of this kind of scandal situation is the fact that M&M's decided to release a pack of candy that was just like the, the quote-unquote female M&M's as like a women's empowerment thing. Um, so you could just buy a pack of M&M's that was just the green, brown, and some other color that are just the female M&M's, whatever. You know, for equality. Whatever. It's a it's a kitschy thing, but it's like, it's the same thing as Skittles releasing the all-white um like Skittle pack for um, like Pride Month. It's 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 a bit whatever. No one cares. It was one ad, but of course, then Tucker Carlson says, "Well, if you're gonna release a pack of of um, women M and M's, you need to release a pack of men M and M's because, you know, men's rights, whatever." And I'm going to say this right now: men's rights activists are the least serious group of people that I have ever encountered. Like, just completely unserious. And I respect that there are issues surrounding masculinity. I think that toxic masculinity is a huge, huge issue um, in our country, around the world. I think that, you know, men's mental health is a really big issue. Mm, men getting their own pack of M&Ms, it's just not that big of a deal. And the men's rights activists are more focused on that than they are on the issues surrounding toxic masculinity. Because the same people... That, oh, I should have actually included Andrew Tate in this didn't hmm whatever regardless the same people that are talking about oh well men need their own pack of m&ms if women get their own pack of m&ms are the same people that are apologists for andrew tate and his behavior and the the impact that he has on young boys right like anyway so there's just they're just an unserious group of people so basically because of all this drama surrounding the M&Ms and their shoe choices and this this pack of kind of female M&Ms that again Tucker Carlson was talking about for a week on end um the M&Ms came out with a statement that they are taking a step back from using their spokes candies again this is so deeply unserious the level of discourse is so deeply unserious um so they're taking a step back from using their spokes candies and instead they are going to be using like humans to be they're like advocates and they're like the people that are in their commercials. Um, so when this all happened, people were like, wow, the culture war people won. They're winning the battle. 
So, the, you know, it's, it's, we've talked about this Republican culture war. They're banning books. They're making M&Ms stop using their spokes candies. They are, um, you know, they're just, they're, we're going to get into all of the other stuff that they're doing, but it's, they're, they're lowering the level of discourse so low when there are so many important things to talk about, uh, there are so many important issues going on in the world, and right now we're stuck talking about M&Ms. So, and it's a really interesting conversation, actually, that, like, again, is based on a very unserious topic. We kind of had a similar conversation a while ago about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her bringing up all of these conspiracy theories and, again, like, just kind of, like, lowering the level of debate overall. And it was, like, how do we fight back against these things that are such easy clickbait and such easy things to like go viral on Twitter. Um, how do we kind of push back against that discourse? How do we raise the level of conversation? And is it, do we stop interacting with these things? How do we stop, do we stop ever promoting Tucker Carlson? We stop retweeting, we stop writing about it. Do I stop talking about it on the show? I don't know, I really don't know. Um, but it's, it's really being stuck in a land where we are, we are in this, this realm of political discourse and we can't get out, um, is a very scary thing. Like we're basically in the end times in terms of kind of like modern political media. Uh, and that's pretty scary to me. Um, but anyway, so the level of tomfoolery out of control. Um, and that's why third on the pyramid, third high score overall. Second on the pyramid, we're getting we're getting into the really good stuff now. This has been, a, a, I know, a very like back and forth episode here. Like just the range of emotions kind of all over the place. But second on the pyramid, second overall, my boy, George Santos. But Emily, you say, how is he possibly in second place? After everything that we learned over the past month and a half, second place? And like, look, it was a tight battle here. The tomfoolery levels are again out of control. The level of Republican embarrassment, like out of control. But just stick with me. We're gonna get into it. You're gonna understand my rankings. You can fight with me if you want, but that's this is this is the vibe. So let's get into a little bit of background. Jump into it. So Santos is a newly elected representative from New York. He flipped a very competitive seat from blue to red. Uh, so he's a Republican. And basically, as soon as he was elected, every single part of his resume started to fall to pieces. So one thing by one thing, they started to realize that he had basically made up his entire resume, his entire background. He is not who he says he was. And it started out like, it's not good, but like kind of light. Like he said that he worked on Wall Street and his like these Wall Street companies were like, no, he never worked for us. And it's like, okay, he embellished his resume. That's fine. And then we find out that he lied about where he went to college. And he never maybe went to college in the U.S. And it's like, well, that's weird. But okay, fine, I guess. We then find out that he lied about being the star of the volleyball team at the college that he lied that, that said that he went to. Weird. Why would you lie about that? Okay. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. He claimed that his mother died on 9-11 in New York, which is expressly untrue as his mother wasn't even in the United States on 9-11. Um, 
he also potentially lied about what his like legal name is because throughout his life he's gone by a lot of different names but mostly like he's always gone by anthony devolder and like never by george santos um so that's kind of weird and that's probably i don't know if this has been like clarified but that's probably how he got away with everything is that he never used this name so if you google that name things aren't going to come up He's also being investigated for check fraud in Brazil, which is where he's from. He was also a drag queen in Brazil for a hot second. Um, of course, after, you know, expressly being like anti-drag and anti-LGBTQ plus issues in a lot of ways. He also lied about being Jewish and instead claimed that he said that he was Jew hyphen-ish, which is wild. Um, and just a whole other big like uh, uh, no part of his stated identity during the campaign cycle is actually true to who he was and every day new things are coming out about this man and about like his background about his uh, actual identity um, another great one is that he claimed that he ran a charity oh you know what actually this is a great one and i can't believe i didn't mention this off the, off the top he claimed that he had a charity for like animals like to like pay for animal surgeries and stuff like that but then it came out that the money he raised for one dog um, that had cancer the owner never got and then the dog died so if you're keeping track at home that means that there are three republican scandals in the past six months that have to do with republicans killing dogs three what I, yeah, it's so funny. It's so, it's, I mean, it's not funny. It's really bad. Obviously, dead dogs, not good. Very sad. But the fact that there are three, like, it, there's like a, like a joke that I made a while ago. There was a, there was a bill going through Congress about giving, helping um, military veterans get service dogs. And I was like, that's a perfect bill because who's going to vote against that? Because like, it's giving puppies to veterans. Like, so not only did he lie about dogs, he also lied about 9-11, which is like, and he's from New York. It's like, it's so bad. It's like the, just every combination of thing that you should not lie about when you're a politician from New York. That's what he did. Um, so again, everything's been coming up very slowly. Um, before he was, before everyone was sworn in, people were like, is he even going to be allowed to be sworn in? Um, because Republicans can... They're, or like the speaker of the the Republican speaker of the House could decide not to swear him in. Um, that's like a decision that they could make. And it was like, is that going to be what happens here? Um, what is actually going to like what 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 consequences are going to be wrought because he lied across the board uh, to a whole bunch of people. But what we do know also we're going to get into this spoiler alert uh, is that he was a big McCarthy ally and because McCarthy needed his vote for the speaker election um, he did end up kind of he was allowed to vote in those elections he was sworn in and he also did get committee seats he um, was on the small business committee which I thought was hilarious which is why I remember it and one other committee he has subsequently given up those committee positions and it kind of seems like a quitting before you get fired type sitch 
Um, but he was given kind of all of the rights and responsibilities of a regular member of Congress, despite the fact that he is straight up not who he says he is. Um, and that's a pretty important situation. Um, first, because it probably has maybe more cultural significance than and more cultural and legal significance than maybe actual political significance, um, because he is not he's if he if he has not resigned within the month he's not going to do anything for the next few years he's going to put his head down and do his thing um but people are going to be clowning on him and clowning on the republicans for letting this happen for the rest of time he is just going to be eternal he's going to be an eternal figure in american politics um and again the, the like the political significance of this is twofold first of all like how did he get away with it how can a candidate get away with doing this kind of thing he was elected and he's still a full member of congress um can he be held legally liable uh did he break a law in the united states did he defraud the american public um and in what ways can he be held, be held accountable for that and we don't know uh whether or not he's going to be given to the ethics committee or whatever whether there are going to be any consequences for him in congress or whether there are going to be any like larger legal consequences for him Second of all, second kind of main legal significance is what does McCarthy's treatment of the situation say about his relationship with the caucus and the body overall and his stability in his position as Speaker of the House? Um, and it's just a truly wild situation. It's really delightful um, to me. It's very funny. He was at uh, Hill Country two weeks ago, which is like a karaoke bar in D.C., it's like hilarious actually that he was there and I can't believe it. And I really wish that I went and saw him, but regardless, apparently he didn't sing, but everyone wishes that he did. But speaking of Kevin McCarthy and his relationship with the caucus brings us to our top story of the day. The top story on the pyramid going three for three once again is Kevin McCarthy's endless speaker vote. Oh boy, as a little bit of a procedure nerd, this situation for me was just delightful. A full week of watching C-SPAN, a full week of getting to explain to people why Congress works the way it does. Ooh, delightful, delightful to me. Getting to watch Republicans embarrass themselves for a week straight on cable television. Ooh, fantastic, just what the doctor ordered. I would wake up every morning, I'd sit there, I'd make myself a little breakfast, I'd turn on C-SPAN, I'd watch C-SPAN all day, I'd then go out, go for a little walk, come back, watch C-SPAN again. Oh, love it. Delightful. But here is kind of what happened. And I know I'm running out of time, so we're going to do this a little rapid fire. Um, Kevin McCarthy required a record 15 votes in order to be elected speaker. Um, and so basically how the speaker election works is it's the first vote of the new Congress um, and it's before anyone in the House of Representatives is sworn in because the Speaker of the House is responsible for swearing in the new Congress. They can't be sworn in without a Speaker of the House. And you need a majority vote. So you need 50% plus one um, in order to win the speakership. Um, and with like a large enough majority that's fine because you, you're going to get those votes. Everyone kind of agrees on a candidate. Uh, they move forward. It's all good. Um, and importantly, when a member of Congress votes present, 
that kind of takes away the number of votes that are necessary for a majority. So if all 435 members of Congress are there, you need 218 votes to win. But if one person votes present, it's like they're not there. And so then you only need 400 or 217 votes to win. And I don't know if that math is right. I remember those numbers off the top of my head. If they're not right, don't at me. Don't at me. Um, so there was a lot of drama building up to the speaker election, because even though the Republicans have a majority, it's a very slim majority. Um, and so they really needed to keep that caucus together in order for Kevin McCarthy to be elected speaker. There was a lot of blame going around around the midterms and around the fact that the Republicans did not have as big of a majority as they thought they were going to have. Um, and then there was a lot of questions about whether or not Kevin McCarthy was a good enough leader for this particular moment with this particular caucus. Um, and this, there was a kind of closed door caucus meeting right before the voting started where a lot of different members of Congress stated publicly that they were not going to be voting for Kevin McCarthy as speaker. So we knew going in that there were gonna be a couple votes. We knew that there was gonna be a contingent of holdouts, just didn't know how large that contingent was gonna be. The answer, pretty big. Um, and they went, you have to keep voting until you elect a speaker. That's the rule, because you can't have, you can't vote on the rules package. You can't vote on anything until you have a Speaker of the House. And so they voted round after round after round, trying to break down these holdouts, who some of them had like pretty valid um, criticisms and kind of valid things that they wanted. And some of them were just being obstructionists for the sake of being obstructionists. One of those people being Matt Gates, um, And this kind of like larger contingent of holdouts was basically the House Freedom Caucus. And they were holding out, holding out, holding out. And they held out for 15 full votes. Um, and what did they want? Uh, it's kind of unclear. Again, a lot of them just hated Kevin McCarthy, like valid. He has a very, you know, whatever. It's it's a valid, it's, it's valid, whatever. And then some of it had to do with agreement over House rules. Um, they wanted positions on House oversight and the rules committee. Um, they wanted certain agreements regarding federal funding, regarding the debt ceiling, regarding funding for Ukraine. Um, but a lot of it was just obstruction. And this is kind of clear because at the end of the process, um, when Gates finally decided to get in line with the rest of the Republicans, uh, he was asked, you know, why did you end up bending to the rest of the caucus? And he said, I couldn't figure out, well, figure out what else to ask for. He bought the house. Kevin McCarthy gave everything that he wanted uh, to this like far right extremist wing of the party because Kevin McCarthy was so desperate to have that gavel in his hand. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the, the short and long of it is that right now Kevin McCarthy holds the gavel, but the House Freedom Caucus holds the power. That's kind of the situation in Congress right now. Um, so the obstructionists got everything they wanted. And the most important thing that they got uh, that I think, I don't know if it's going to become a thing, but it probably will become a thing, is that they have a snap vote for Speaker. So if you kind of like, you know, paying attention to what was happening in Parliament last year, uh, where they just had so many votes of no confidence, like over and over and over again, votes of no confidence and electing new um prime ministers, that's basically the rule now in the House, is that one member of Congress can do a vote of no confidence, and they can basically oust the speaker and elect a new speaker. 
and that makes Kevin McCarthy's position very precarious. And he made a lot of commitments on certain things, particularly with federal funding and the debt ceiling, that he might not be able to keep those commitments. Because it's not just him, like there's a, there's a much larger narrative, um, particularly with the debt ceiling. So when those votes do come up, and he's unable to fulfill the commitments that he made to the House Freedom Caucus, it's not unforeseen that they're going to call a snap vote. And they're going to kind of fight him on these things. Um, so that's not great. Uh, for him and his kind of security and his position as speaker, which is probably why he's getting pretty cozy with the far right. He's getting pretty cozy with Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and people like that. He's also staying cozy with Santos because he knows that he needs that vote because Santos is never going to vote against him um, because he is kind of terrified of those kind of political repercussions. Um, so not great. And all in all, this looks... What it makes up to me is that there's going to be an extraordinarily dysfunctional couple of years in the House. Um, the level of infight, like Nancy Pelosi had a pretty diverse caucus in terms of ideology, a very diverse caucus in terms of ideology, but she was able to whip the votes that she needed. She was able to get it done. She did what she needed to do. She whipped those votes and it was great. And Kevin McCarthy is just not that kind of leader and never will be that kind of leader. And of course, we see that from the 15 votes that it took for him to be elected as speaker. But I do think that we're going to see that now throughout the rest of these two years um, with the Republicans in control of the House, because I don't think that Kevin McCarthy is going to be able to keep control of the caucus in the way that he wants. And I think that that's going to be embarrassing for him throughout the next two years. Um, so again, the Santos situation may take the cake in terms of overall levels of tomfoolery, but in terms of embarrassment to Republicans and actual political significance, and in terms of, I think, my own personal enjoyment, that does put it on the top of the pyramid for today. Maddie Ziegler, Kevin McCarthy, besties going three for three on the top of the pyramid. Um, honestly, the whole last month and a half, not great for the Republicans, but... They continue to chug along. Um, but that is all I wanted to cover today. I barely got that all done in time, and I skipped over a couple good points. But, uh, you know, we, we continue to ball. We continue to vibe. Um, so thank you all very much for listening to this first episode of Sheep Thrills. Uh, I am live every Thursday from 12 to 1. So I'll be back next week. We've always got so much to talk about. Um, if you're interested in following along with the show at all, um, uh, I you can follow on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter is SheepThrillsGW and Instagram is SheepThrillsRadio. Um, so you can check out those things. I post show notes on Spotify so you can take a look at kind of some, some links and notes or corrections if I said anything egregiously wrong over the last hour. Um, but with all that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. I am looking forward to a really great season, a really great kind of last hurrah with WRGW. Um, hope you guys have a great weekend, and I will talk to you guys in the next one.